RAC's post-op podcast is brought to you with the compliments of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and leading financial services organisation, the Bongiorno National Network, the preferred choice for medical professionals across Australia. Dr Matt Brick's journey into the world of surgery wasn't the most conventional. He studied at medical school but shifted direction to focus on running and cycling. He's a two-time world champion duathlete and he's represented Aotearoa New Zealand at the world championship level in cycling. That passion for sports and activity-related injury enticed him back to the medical fold as an orthopaedic surgeon. Today, he's one of just a handful of surgeons worldwide who have experienced thousands of hip arthroscopies. Dr Brick is on several international committees relating to hip arthroscopies, and he's actively involved in research and teaching. And if that's not enough, he continues to involve himself in sport through racing, coaching and research. Dr Matt Brick takes Chris Ashmore back to the beginning of his fascinating life story. Well, from the beginning, many listeners won't know where Putaruru is, but it's a small Waikato town, and I was born there. And the other significant person who was born there was Sir Edmund Hillary, the guy who climbed Mount Everest. But then I went to primary school in Tapuki, which is famous for kiwifruit, and I was a kiwifruit orchard kid, and then moved on to high school in Dunedin at Otago Boys, and that's home of Richie McCaw. He went to Otago Boys. But uh, by the time I'd finished school there, I was ready to move to a different town, so I ended up at Auckland Medical School. Auckland's mostly been my home from age 17 till now, age 60. But uh, you know, sport and things weren't part of my life early on. And Dunedin, being the Dunedin music scene, I was a drummer in a rock band. So that was my passion, my love from, uh, from age 15 to probably age 25. And accounts for my current hearing loss. <laughs> we, we, we didn't use earplugs back then and uh, we pay the price as we get older. Indeed. <laughs> now, tell me, you were a budding doctor fresh out of medical school and you turned into a professional athlete. How did that come to be? Well, again, at medical school, it was always about drumming. And I confess, I smoked cigarettes. I grew up in a cigarette-smoking family and I followed that lead. So I wasn't remotely athletic played rugby at high school and I was pretty bad at it, but every Kiwi kid played rugby. And then a six-year relationship was ending. And you know how guys are when they've been dropped by their girlfriend. They get a bit sorry for themselves and they take to some other pursuit. And for me, I started running and I was working at as a house surgeon, house officer uh, at Carrington Hospital, which is was a big psychiatric hospital, which is now closed. And one of the physiotherapists there invited me to come and do a team triathlon. And uh, I thought, sure, she looked great, and I'll come along and be a team triathlete. (laughs) Uh, And I had no idea what I was in for. But the strange, unexpected part was that I was good at it. Despite still smoking and not really training, a couple of weeks later, I did another triathlon. And I think out of 500 people, I think I finished 25th. Wow! And that is just the dumb luck of genetics, of your heart and lung capacity, that I didn't know I had. I had no idea. And with a bit of training, you know, I started moving up the field and contesting for the win. But what held me up was being an adult swimming learner. And learning to swim is like learning a foreign language. If you learn as an adult, you'll always have an accent. And if you learn as an adult swimmer, you'll always be slow or slowish. Hmm. Uh, and that counted me out of top international triathlon. But duathlon, running, biking, then running again, was made for me. And so for three years, myself and then my fiance Tracy, we traveled the world 
and made our living from duathlon. And as it was completely unexpected, but one thing that was a consistent factor was that I've always been competitive. And so right from a little fella at primary school, if there was a test on, you know, I wanted to be top or near the top. I wanted to do my best and, you know, get a good result. And that part kicked into gear straight away. So, you know, I delved into the science, the heart rate monitoring and zone specific training. And so Polar Heart Rate Monitors were a great sponsor because their Finnish company was leading the world in heart rate monitoring for athletes. And I was kind of the bridge between the company scientists and the athletes and their coaches because one foot in each camp being a doctor myself. And that was a good relationship during my competing years. How old were you when retirement tapped you on the shoulder as an athlete? Yeah, I was about 30 and an Achilles tendon injury was going to stop, you know, it was really troublesome and I just, you know, was not racing well and I knew it would take some time to fix and I knew that doors would be closing if I kept on going for a few more years into my 30s and it was a tough decision and my wife will probably attest that I was probably a bit miserable for a while as I retired, but I thought maybe I can go back to medicine. When I finished medical school, I'd followed my older brother into medical school without too many reasons of my own. And I finished medical school thinking, why did I do that? Mm. Uh, And that's when I tried my 48-hour career in business, which was just a miserable failure. (laughs) It wasn't for me. And then when I finished sport, a couple of my sponsors offered me jobs, but that would be overseas. And I wanted to return home. And I suddenly thought, well, maybe I can make medicine work for me and stay within the sphere of sport. And I sat in with a really good sports physician uh, for a couple of days, and his job looked great. But two or three times during that couple of days, he got out his referral pad and wrote a referral to one of the local orthopedic surgeons. And if I'm honest, I'm a bit of a control freak, and I thought, I'm going to struggle to write that referral. I want to do it myself. And so I thought, well, I will try orthopedic training, but I won't be too proud to call it quits if it's just not for me. But honestly, from day one, as a surgical registrar, I thought, this is great. And even though all of the surgeries I was learning how to do as a trainee, I don't do now, hip replacement, knee replacement, orthopedic trauma, that's the bread and butter of an orthopedic training, and I don't do any of those things. But I still really enjoyed learning how to do them. You know, I had great teachers. I loved the environment in the operating room. I loved the learning. And I never had a doubt. So once I started, I never had a single doubt that I was on the right path. Terrific. Well, you certainly like a challenge, and the world of surgery can be tough. How were those early years when you were a trainee and a junior surgeon? Were those tough years? No, but I got my wife to thank for that because you know we had our family during that time. So we had four kids while I was doing my orthopedic training oh, wow. and Tracy held the fort and was an incredible support. So I was lucky. I kind of only had to focus on doing a good job at work and staying ahead of my reading and staying ahead of my exams. Having that kind of help, which not every trainee has, I was very fortunate. And so when I look back, I don't think of it as an especially tough time. There were long nights and early mornings and days where you thought you were going to keel over, you were so tired. But we were all in it together. All of the orthopedic trainees around me were putting their shoulder to the wheel and doing the same job. So, you know, I never felt put upon. I felt like I was kind of part of a team. So that makes it much, much easier. Mm. But during the whole time, I knew that I was going to branch out once I'd finished my training because my dream was to look after athletes. And that's mostly arthroscopic surgery. 
And one of the problems with the training in the public hospital system in New Zealand is that the registrars hardly ever get their hands on the arthroscope. And I use the analogy, it's like the difference between playing football or playing FIFA football on your Xbox or PlayStation. Mm. They're both football, but they're completely different. The goal to to score goals is the same, but the use of your hands and eyes in a screen is completely different. And so it's like starting again. And I was lucky enough to get a position as a fellow in Pittsburgh with the late Freddie Fu. He was a great mentor, and that training was fantastic. I spent time in Perth, Australia with Keith Holt and Greg Witherow. Again, great orthopedic arthroscopic training. And then coming home, I had sufficient skills to get going. But the knee and shoulder are relatively, relatively straightforward. I say relatively because the joint is close to the skin and moving your instruments around is relatively easy. But the hip is a whole different ball game. Mm. When I was in Pittsburgh, Freddie told me to go over and see a, a young surgeon called Mark Philippon, who now works in Vale. And he really is one of the godfathers of hip arthroscopy. He was a game changer who just changed the way we could do things. A Swiss surgeon called Reinhold Gantz had kind of unraveled the mystery of why many of our hips become arthritic. And it's simply because of the shape of the hip. The socket's too deep or the socket's too shallow. The femoral neck is a bad shape and the hip quite literally jams. And that starts to wipe out the cartilage and down the track, the person's arthritic. And all of the early surgery for this condition was open surgery, which is no joke for the patient. Mm. You know, they get a big cut, they get their greater trochanter cut off with a saw and screwed back on. It's a big deal called an open hip dislocation. Doing it arthroscopically, keyhole, changed everything. And Mark was one of the pioneers of doing that. I was lucky to learn under him. But coming back to New Zealand, I was one of the early adopters along with my colleague Hamish Crawford. And gradually over the last 20 years, it's taken over my life. And it wasn't part of a grand plan. But as referrers knew that Matt was the guy doing a lot of hip arthroscopy, I got more and more referrals and it started to squeeze my knee and shoulder practice. And so to allow time to see my hip patients, I've had to hand on my knee and shoulder referrals to trusted colleagues who work with me. So it's been a big change. Mm. I understand that you've done some research. You've done a lot of it overseas, is that right? In collaboration with overseas people, yes, we've got a big trial at the moment looking at hip instability. That doesn't mean dislocating hips. It literally means a wobbling hip with more translational movement of the femoral head. And it affects mainly young women by virtue they're much more flexible. And a hip with a relatively normal MRI scan can be incredibly painful. Some of these young women who come to me who have had 10 years of pain and they've been to see a psychiatrist because they were told they were crazy because all of their scans look normal. But the problem is the hip is unstable. And even though I can diagnose that, I've been seeing thousands of hips, it's not a very good diagnosis if only an expert can diagnose it. That is not good. It needs to be diagnosed by a GP, by an orthopedic registrar, by a physiotherapist, And to do that, we need to nail down the diagnostic criteria. And that's what this study is all about. And so there's Vikas Kandura, who's at Cambridge University. There's Mark Safran, who's a professor at Stanford University. There's Joshua Harris, who's in Houston, Texas. He looks after a lot of the ballet dancers in the US. And there's Nicolas Bonin, who's in Lyon in France. And so it's important to be multinational because if it comes out of one center, it's open to bias. 
So with five of us contributing hundreds and hundreds of hip arthroscopy patients and then confirming the diagnosis during surgery, we can work backwards and work out diagnostic criteria that we can teach anyone. And that's an important project that we hope to publish in the next couple of years. That's fantastic. What would you consider makes a good surgeon? Uh, lots of things. Recognizing our own bias right from the beginning. You know, to acknowledge that we're human too. We have feelings and an ego too. And realizing that our own biases can get in the way of rational decision making. Recognizing that the patient is the boss, not us. Our goal is to steer them through the decision-making process and make the decision together rather than the old-fashioned paternalistic way of saying, this is the operation you need. That's from long ago and doesn't belong in the modern day. So knowing our bias, helping steer our patient accurately through the decision-making process. But when it comes to the operating room, of course, we need a degree of dexterity and care, but we also need a fair bit of control of our own emotions. And I've seen many times in the operating room, surgeons who are getting into strife, we all get fearful, but rather than telling the, communicating to the team, the surgeon will just simply get angry because it's a much more, I don't know, manly emotion to be angry than it is to be scared. Mm. And boy, oh boy, there's not a surgeon alive who hasn't been scared a few times in the operating room. But what makes a good surgeon is bringing the team in and making sure your team know what you're doing and taking the time to educate our team as we go with each operation we do. So then you have a really smart team who's looking over your shoulder and they know what you're doing and they know what the goal is. And that is a safety check when the people helping you really understand what you're doing. I know that one of my nurses came from overseas and she asked a question of her surgeon when she was younger. She was told, you don't need to know that. Mm. Now that is dead wrong. What needs to happen is the surgeon needs to tell exactly what's going on and why and take the time to teach our team to be a better team. And at the end of the day, it saves the surgeon too, because on a number of occasions, I might have missed a step or not done something. And my nurse will say, hey, Matt, you, you didn't wash the joint out or whatever it was. And why? Because they know what I'm doing. So taking the time to teach, taking the time to make a team is, is a really important part of being a surgeon. Absolutely. Looking back, Matt, what are the highlights of your career so far? And are there any particular situations that stand out in memory? Watching my patients get back to what they want to do. Now, one of the challenges of looking after an athletic community is, you know, for example, I had a woman come to me and her pain only came on if she ran for more than 90 minutes. And most of us would say, well, run, run 89 minutes. Mm. But you know, she was a professional athlete and that wasn't possible. So the degree to which we can make that patient worse is significant. And so seeing my professional athletes get back to the national teams, get back to what they love, that's always a highlight. Watching your patient who's had bilateral hip surgery run less than two hours 15 for a marathon is fantastic. Or getting a photo of climbing Mount Everest or some other monumental achievement, that's always fantastic. Otherwise, working with my wife, Tracy, has been a highlight. She does the triage for the practice and basically keeps everything running and communicates with the patients, runs rehab, and we work well together. So that's been a lifelong thing. It's been a real highlight. Training fellows. I love teaching you know, young surgeons what I'm doing, and I've got friends as a result all around the world. That's, that's been a real highlight. And you're know, developing the big database. I've got a research team of four women who are all 
great scientists in their own right who look after my database because, as I said, we're all biased. And so the bigger the distance between me and the database, the better. <laughs> and that's a good thing. And Catherine, my research manager, makes sure there's, you know, I'm kept at arm's length. I've got a query of the database. She'll answer it for me, but that's as close as I get. So you know, that's been a thrill too. And a big part of my practice has been developing that. Terrific. Do you still run and ride? Oh, absolutely. I did the Ironman last year. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I, I hadn't done it since I was 40. And I decided 20 years later at age 60, it was time to see how much I'd slowed down. So 40 years old was eight hours, 59. And 60 years old was nine hours and 50 minutes. So a little bit slower, but that's okay. That's very good. Yeah. <laughs> now, you've done many different things in your life. You've achieved a lot. What's the future for Dr. Matt Brick? Well, the first thing is going to be some type of succession planning. I'm doing probably the majority of the hip arthroscopy for the whole country, and I need to make sure that the next generation are doing it better than me. So that's the big thing for the next few years. Making sure the database is locked in so it continues after I retire, that's really important because your 20, 30, 40-year follow-up is just invaluable as we move forward. So that'll be a big goal. And then more time to travel and have adventures with Tracy. That's definitely a goal too. Yeah. Because yeah, at the moment, the, the hours are long and that's okay. But I also want to have plenty of physical energy left in the tank for adventures uh, when I'm not working so hard. Dr. Matt Brick. Rack's post-op podcast is brought to you with the compliments of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and leading financial services organisation, the Bongiorno National Network the preferred choice for medical professionals across Australia. You can reach the Bongiorno National Network on plus 613 9863 3111.